0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pacman Show, The Progressive, The Rachel Maddow Show, Counterspin, The Tom Hartman Program, The Majority Report, Citizen Radio, and The Young Turks. And a note for any of you really staunch Obama supporters out there, I'm going to want to hear from you on the voicemail line after
1: this one.
2: We've been talking about drones for a long time on this program. And one of the things we've talked about is how we are still waiting for the legal justification that the White House claims it has for drone warfare, including the use of drone strikes on Americans who have not been charged or convicted of any crime who are living abroad. And we finally now, thanks to NBC News, we have a Justice Department memo which essentially reveals the legal case for drone strikes on Americans and others around the world. And I say essentially because the memo is not an actual legal document in the sense that it it is not the formal legal document that is presented uh, in a court setting or a legal setting of any kind. It it is a memo, though, that outlines the, the perception from the administration about what they are doing how they determine who is okay to drone strike, so on and so forth. So I think I've made that distinction clear, right, Lewis? I think so. So what does this say? This is a 16-page memo. It's available online if you Google it. It's been obtained by NBC News. And it says a lot of interesting things. And one of the things that that is interesting is the lack of definition for the terms that are used to evaluate when a drone strike is okay. So let me give you an example of what I mean. The, uh, The idea of an imminent threat okay if you look at the document and I, it's only sixteen pages if you care about this stuff i encourage you to look at it because it's really it, it'll take you i don't know fifteen twenty minutes to to look over and it'll really give you a sense for what is the case here that is being made by the administration and how they're thinking about these drone strikes the idea that if there is an imminent threat it is okay to conduct a drone strike the um, the term imminent is used and it actually says that number one imminence is not defined, but number two that the imminence of a threat only has to be mentioned. in other words, the, the government can say we believe that there is an imminent nature to this threat without having to define imminent or even to justify what in particular makes someone an imminent threat. It's wide open though right like Iraq was an imminent threat we right thought we believe they have weapons of mass destruction we consider them an imminent threat. Exactly. Yeah. uh, Also, it says that uh, an informed and high-level official of the U.S. government may determine that the targeted American has been recently involved in activities posing a threat of a violent attack. Let's let's look at that, Lewis. I mean, this is incredible. An informed and high-level official of the U.S. government. Subjective. Who determines if they're informed? Who determines if they're high-level? They could determine that the American has been recently involved. What is recent? Doesn't say. In activities that pose a threat, what activities qualify, Lewis? I don't know. And that it would be a threat of a violent attack. What constitutes an attack being violent? It's completely wide open. And what we basically see here, this is actually, even though this gives us insight into what the, the, the administration sees as the guidelines under which drone strikes can be uh, 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 done, it actually is shocking in the sense that it shows that the entire thing is completely subjective and just left up to the interpretation of almost anyone. Anybody who is informed in high level could say that uh, an attack is imminent because of recent, how recent, we don't know, activities, what activities, we don't know, pose a threat, what kind of a threat, we don't know. And if afterwards it turns out that this high-level
3: official was misinformed and that the American killed posed no threat, uh, then
2: oh well. As we know has happened, Natan. Natan, what's your thought about this memo and, and what does this say to you?
3: Uh, it It just says that this issue is going to only get more and more visible in the public eye, and there 's probably going to be either lawsuits or congressional hearings to try to get to the bottom of whether, even if you agree that the President or that the country as a whole should have the authority to do this, whether it 's correct for the executive branch to have full authority to do this secretly without the approval of even any congressional leaders so there 's going to be at least some sort of Uh, you know, backlash from this that results in more hearings. Don't you have to assume that the people in question, the government would rather have the people in question alive uh, in terms of information gathering and who they might be working with and things of that nature? I mean, is it really going to come down to, well, we're not going to be able to get to this guy in time, we have to drone strike his apartment, his house, whatever? I mean, it seems like a very rare situation.
2: Well, there's one other aspect, which is that anything but a drone strike would be cumbersome or would take too long or could lead to even more civilian casualties than the ones we've been seeing with the drone strikes and again by civilian casualties i understand that some of the people targeted are also civilians like for example when the farmer was farming at night which is which is done um in in pakistan sometimes and he was assumed to have been bearing a bomb and was was uh... he was the victim of a strike he was killed Lewis, what would you say is the number one reason people should tune in to the David Pakman show if they like Jay Tomlinson's Best of the Left podcast? I mean, I see it completely differently from, from someone who's just watching it. Yeah, well, but if I was
3: asking someone else's opinion for the promo... I don't even watch our show, so how can I answer that question? I do not watch our show. So Lewis is, isn't even a fan of the show.
2: <laughs> Maybe the answer is
3: Lewis doesn't actually like show. Can you this be show. a fan of the show? I mean, are you? Can, is, isn't that kind of stupid to be a fan of your own show? I'm a
2: huge fan of this show.
3: <laughs> of course. That's like being a fan of
2: yourself. You're like a narcissist do you put pictures up of yourself at home, too. Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpackman.com
4: New light and not a flattering light has been shed on the Obama administration's sweeping claim that it can assassinate U.S. citizens anywhere in the world. Michael Isikoff of NBC News just got hold of a 16-page Justice Department memo rationalizing this policy. It's an amazingly disturbing memo. It says that the executive branch can go ahead and bump off a U.S. citizen if a high-level official of the U.S. government, not even necessarily the President of the United States, determines that this person is an imminent threat and that it's unfeasible to capture the person. It then defines imminent in a way that stretches the word to ridiculous limits. And in another sleight of hand, it says that these hits would not be assassinations because they're done in self-defense. And then on top of it, All, it asserts that the executive branch and the executive branch alone has the right to say whether these actions are kosher or not. No judge, it says, can weigh in. The memo says there exists no appropriate judicial forum to evaluate these constitutional considerations. Talk about being above the law. There seems to be something in the air in the Oval Office that tends to turn the occupant into Richard Nixon. It's happening now to Barack Obama. I'm Matt Rothschild. And that's how I see it.
5: If you are going to be killed by a Hellfire missile, does it matter to you if that missile is fired from one of these? Or from one of these instead? What is novel about drones is not that U.S. forces can kill people from the air using targeted so-called precision-guided missiles. U.S. forces have been killing people from the air for as long as we have had the capacity to put armed things in the air. What is novel about what our government is doing now, in our day, is not necessarily the technology. Yes, we are using remote piloted aircraft versus traditionally piloted aircraft to launch these same missiles. But the type of aircraft that is the delivery system for the Hellfire missile is not the new moral, strategic, legal thing that we are finding ourselves newly responsible for grappling with as citizens. It is not the technology by which U.S. forces are killing people, which is new in an important way. It's not the technology that's new. It is the circumstances. It is the circumstances of killing people away from where a war is being fought. If the U.S. was using a mix of helicopters and drones to fire Hellfire missiles at insurgents who were fighting with U.S. troops in Afghanistan right now, nobody would have a different ethical concern or a different strategic concern about the missiles that were fired from the drones versus the missiles filed from the helicopters, right? Or even from a piloted fixed-wing aircraft. doesn't matter where it comes from. The missile's the same. The reason drones are a policy concern, an ethical concern, a strategic concern, is because of how we use them. And we use them to kill people in countries where we are not at war. The reason we were able to have the riveting hearings that we had today in Washington is because this concern has come up in another era as well. This concern of killing people away from where we are at war. It's not just a drone thing. Today's confirmation hearing for John Brennan, uh, President Obama's nominee to head the CIA, it was held in the Intelligence Committee in the Senate, right? Specifically, it's called the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. This committee was not created until 1976. It was created specifically in response to the recommendations of the Church Committee. The Church Committee was a special Senate investigation led by Idaho Senator Frank Church. It was formed in 1975. Their work took nine months and 150 staffers. They produced a two-foot-thick report in May 1976 that said, among other things, that we need Congress to oversee intelligence in this country. The way we are overseeing it now is not working. And you know why we can tell that oversight is not working? Because the CIA keeps killing people or trying to kill people in other countries that we are not at war with. The CIA at the time had taken it upon itself. It wasn't clear if they were acting alone or at various presidents' direction. But they had taken on the job of assassinations in foreign countries. Assassinations and attempted assassinations. And the Senate said that was not cool. It's from the church report. The evidence establishes that the United States was implicated in several assassination plots. The committee believes that short of war, assassination is incompatible with American principles, international order, and morality. It should be rejected as a tool of foreign policy. The Church Committee report came out, said that. Gerald Ford issued an executive order banning assassinations. The select committees on intelligence were formed in the House and the Senate to exert oversight over the CIA, since the Armed Services Committees, who had been supposedly overseeing them, had fallen down on the job. Actually, they'd never seemed all that interested in that part of the job in the first place. And that is how we got to a place where these senators today could question this CIA director nominee under the expectation that he has to answer to them. And they need to be apprised of what the CIA is doing every step of the way. And targeted killing by the CIA is not just something they're allowed to do quietly on their own or in private with the White House without at least having to explain.
6: Every American has the right to know when their government believes it's allowed to kill them and ensuring that the Congress has the documents and information it needs to conduct robust oversight is central to our democracy. In fact, the committee was actually created in large part in response to lax oversight of programs that involve targeted killings.
5: Some of the most contentious back and forth today was about whether the CIA is killing people now outside of places that we are at war because it is U.S. policy just to shoot on sight all over the world or whether the CIA really is trying to capture people and it's just not working out that they can ever successfully do that.
7: Your view seems to be that even if we could save American lives by detaining more terrorists using only traditional techniques, it would be better to kill them with a drone or let them go free rather than detain them. Can you explain the logic in that argument? Well, I respectfully disagree, Senator. I do not... Know- I never believe it's better to kill a terrorist than to detain him. We want to detain as many terrorists as possible so we can elicit the intelligence from them in an appropriate manner so that we can disrupt follow-on terrorist attacks. So I'm a strong proponent of doing everything possible short of killing terrorists, bringing them to justice, and getting that intelligence from them. How many high-value targets have been captured during your service with the administration? Uh, there have been a number of individuals who have been captured, arrested, detained, interrogated, debriefed, and put away by our partners overseas, which is we have given them the capacity now. We have provided them the intelligence. And unlike in the immediate aftermath of 9 when a lot of these countries were both unwilling and unable to do it, we have given them that opportunity. And so that's where we're working with our, our partners. How many high-value targets have been arrested and detained, interrogated by the United States during your four years with the administration? I'll be happy to get that information to you, Senator, in terms of those high-value targets that have been captured with uh, U.S. uh, intelligence support. I submit to you the answer to that is one. And it's Warsami, who was put on a ship for 60 days and interrogated. Thank you.
5: One high-value target captured? and of course lots killed. If the CIA does make public that there have been uh, m- more than just that one guy captured that Senator Saxby Chambliss mentioned there, we will let you know. But in the meantime, that's kind of a, a hell of a ratio, right? In terms of killed versus captured, 4,700 to one. So the idea is that first you're trying to capture people, but the rate at which you do that is 1 47 hundredth of a time. In recent days, though, there has been intense focus on whether secret targeted killing by our militarized CIA uh, is also a program that is allowed to target people who have U.S. citizenship. On Monday, NBC News' Michael Isikoff broke the news on this show that he had unearthed a 16-page white paper spelling out some of the legal reasoning behind why our government thinks it is okay to target Americans specifically for killing. That was Monday night. Then last night, the administration announced that the Justice Department classified memo that was the basis of that white paper, the actual legal advice to the president from his lawyers, that would be released to the Intelligence Committee. They'd been asking for it forever. They were finally going to release it. It seemed like the pressure and the attention ahead of this confirmation hearing today had finally brought about some real momentum toward transparency, that we would at least let the Senate committee in charge of overseeing this part of our government finally oversee this part of our government. That's what it seemed like. And then this happened.
6: So it was encouraging last night when the president called and indicated that effective immediately, he would release the documents necessary for senators to understand the full legal analysis of the president's authority to conduct the targeted killing of an American. What the president said is a good first step towards ensuring the openness and accountability that's important. Since last night, however, I have become concerned that the Department of Justice is not following through with the president's commitment just yet. 11 United States Senators asked to see any and all legal opinions, but when I went to read the opinions this morning, it is not clear that that is what was provided.
5: They didn't get it? The Justice Department didn't hand over what the committee asked for? That we all reported last night the committee was going to get this morning because the president had okayed it? They're still holding out?
0: It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support.
8: The Washington Post reported news February 6th that it's known for years, but decided not to tell until now. The CIA has a drone base in Saudi Arabia. The paper's rationale for withholding the information was simple. The government wanted them to. After reporting that Anwar al-Awlaki was killed in Yemen by an attack, quote, carried out in part by CIA drones flown from a secret base in Saudi Arabia, close quote, the paper explains, quote, The Washington Post had refrained from disclosing the location at the request of the administration, which cited concern that exposing the facility would undermine operations against an al-Qaeda affiliate regarded as the network's most potent threat to the United States, as well as potentially damage counterterrorism collaboration with Saudi Arabia. Close quote. So, why report it now? Quote, the Post learned Tuesday night that another news organization was planning to reveal the location of the base, effectively ending an informal arrangement among several news organizations that had been aware of the location for more than a year, close quote. The other news organization was apparently the New York Times, which mentioned the Saudi base in a February 5th report. Times public editor Margaret Sullivan cited the paper's managing editor, Dean Baquette, on her blog, repeating the official line that revealing the base's location might jeopardize its existence as, quote, the Saudis might shut it down because the citizenry would be very upset, close quote. But he allowed that, quote, we have to balance that concern with reporting the news, close quote. It's possible that Saudi Arabia will stop allowing the CIA to use its territory to conduct a secret drone war against a third country now that the secret is out, but the possibility that news might affect the world is not a reason to stop doing journalism. You might say it's the best reason to do it:
9: I guess it's. Time I-
5: Trouble has my true shape, like Dorian Gray. I've heard what they say, but I'm not in trouble. It's more than
10: just words, it's just tears and rain.
11: I have been watching, particularly on our message board, on the message board over Democratic Underground. Um, on a lot of them, uh, those, those are two that I pay a lot of attention to. People on the one side arguing that we're at war. And therefore, you know, and the, and the president, he doesn't use the phrase war on terror anymore, but we're at war and therefore Americans who have joined the other side are now enemy combatants and thus should be treated like any other dangerous enemy during a time of war. If there's an imminent danger, they should be killed. This is the George W. Bush argument, and the strength of it is the memory of 9-11. And this enduring belief in the minds of many Americans that 9-11 was an act of war in and of itself. It was a modern-day Pearl Harbor, and therefore we're justified in pursuing that war until the enemy, al-Qaeda, is either dead or surrenders. Now, the first weakness of that argument is that our Constitution and the international laws that we've signed onto through numerous U.N. and other international treaties very clearly describe what is a war and how that's different than what we call a crime. Pearl Harbor had Japan, a country. 9-11 had bin Laden, a criminal. Also for a war, you need a congressional declaration of war and a nation to declare that war against And once that's happened, there are very specific rules under which we conduct that war. The last time our nation had a congressional declaration of war, legally invoking our constitutional war powers, was in 1941, and that war ended, as I recall, in 1945. Do I have those years right? I think so. I don't know. I wasn't around back then, but it was World War II. You know what I'm talking about. Which strengthens the argument that 9-11 was a crime, not an act of war, an argument that a lot of Democrats are making, or were making, I was certainly making, when George W. Bush was president. A cri- And, and that, that argument is supported that it was a crime, not a war, by the fact that by our having arrested, and right now, as we speak, having on trial 9-11's mastermind, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and our having executed its funder, Osama bin Laden, and putting others on trial for their participation or support of 9/11—that it was a crime. I mean, we're behaving as if we're dealing with criminals, which highlights the second weakness of the "Obama is fighting a war" argument for Democrats. It's a naked continuation of the policies of George W. Bush, which so many of us considered both illegal, immoral, and fundamentally inconsistent with both American and international pr- principles of both governance and morality. So that's one side. On the other side of this intra-Democratic Party argument are those who suggest that President Obama is both our president and the head of the Democratic Party, and as such deserves the support of Democrats and people who lean toward the Democratic Party. And that was the rationale used by many, if not most Republicans, who privately opposed many of Bush's policies, particularly his drunken sailor spending policies and his war policies. During his eight years, but they kept their mouths shut. They weren't screaming about the deficit until a Democrat came into the White House. Even though George W. Bush, you know, not only made the largest contribution to it of any president in history, but put into place two wars, Medicare Part D and a tax cut, which basically required that the president after him would continue that, you know, those deficit policies. So today in simplified form, Many Democrats and Democratic Party supporters are faced with a pretty stark choice on this issue. Of using, you know, this, this whole issue of using drones to kill American citizens without trial. In frankly, I'd say using drones to kill anybody without a trial. Particularly in a country with which we're not at war. And what makes it even more stark, in addition to the Brennan hearings that are going on as we speak, is that our Democratic president has done this, executing an American citizen without a trial. Three times now. Three times President Obama has served as judge, jury, and executioner. So, do you support your party and its leader, right or wrong? Or do you support the Constitution? Now, some argue that it's possible to do both. In fact, legal minds in the the White House, from Bush's guys like John Yoo and Jay Bybee to John Brennan today, have argued that the Bush-Obama doctrine of the president as judge, jury, and executioner is not inconsistent with the president. And certainly there's history that goes all the way back to the presidency of George Washington that could be used to justify that theory, although back during the George Washington administration and the Adams administration and the Jefferson and and Min- Madison and Monroe and, and Taylor and... Um, that judge, jury, executioner power of of the chief executive of the president was used mostly to justify the genocide of Native Americans. But still, there's a precedent. But that doesn't make it any less an unconstitutional doctrine, in my opinion. We shouldn't have been doing it against the Indians. We shouldn't be doing it now against our own people or against people in other countries with which we're not at war. At the very least, before we give somebody a death sentence... There should be a jury trial, as required by the Fifth through the Eighth Amendments of the U.S. Constitution. We are not at war. We are facing groups of religious and political fanatics, not unlike the British faced with the IRA, the Italians of the Red Brigades, the Germans of the Daughter meinhoff Gang, or frankly, as the U.S. faced with the weather underground or the KKK in my lifetime. And domestically, we arrest and try criminals. Internationally you get Interpol involved. That's that's my take.
12: Let's have a uh, dissenting view that President Obama's uh, targeted assassination policy is uh, incorrect. Let's bring on a strategic analyst from Fox News, Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Peters. And hear what he has to say about this uh, targeted assassination program. Some people believe that you
9: shouldn't
5: kill American citizens who become terrorists without giving them the due process of the law. Your reaction? Now, now, any uh,
12: rational sane person would say, well, that's part of the problem, uh, lady. We don't know that they've become terrorists uh, because we're leaving that designation up to a very small group of people who are in the business of of killing lots of people and have a calculation in their mind that, uh, even if it's fifty-fifty, we're going to assume that they're terrorists uh, by definition, and that's one thing that a rational person would say. But let's hear what these strategic analysts, Lieutenant Colonel uh,
13: Ralph Peters, says. Well, I mean that's absolute nonsense. The fundamental purpose of a, a that legitimizes a state, the existence of a government, is to protect its citizens. Against violence, foreign and domestic. Now, when someone, a U.S. citizen, takes up arms against the United States, betrays his country, joins a, a terrorist organization dedicated to our destruction, and uses his knowledge of America to help inspire, plan, and execute terrorist attacks that kill American citizens, guess what? this guy is not double parked he's not a shoplifter throughout our history we have killed americans who took up arms against their law-abiding fellow citizens this is not a legal issue it's not an issue at all Mm -hmm. if an american turns his back on america and tries to kill americans you kill the sucker period no legal issue (laughs) kill him
5: uh, uh, agreed from this point of view real quickly though do you fear that that would be carried beyond that that's what some people are concerned about
13: No, I mean, all this hysteria, you know, it's all the the black helicopters are coming to take my Hershey bar. No, the president, Obama is doing one sensible thing, just one sensible thing in killing terrorists. Let's give him credit for the one smart thing he's doing, whatever his motivation may be. Hershey bar?
12: Somebody's coming to take my Hershey bar? I mean, now, understand that if Fox... Um, a strategic analyst, where, the, the way they find their strategic analysts is they go to the local bar and find the drunkest guy and bring him into uh, Fox Studios. But, of course, the issue here is not whether or not um, on a battlefield you can kill an American who picks up uh, a gun and is fighting you. The question here is how do you determine that? How do you have a targeted assassination program where you allow essentially no review as to whether or not what is clearly an ambiguous determination, whether or not that person has done so? It's just absurd. And I love the fact that guys are like, let's just give him credit for one of the sensible things he's done, for whatever his motives may be. (laughs) Wait,
7: wait, Wait, what does that mean? I explained that to you. I think what it is is that, you know, Obama's part of the Muslim Brotherhood. And they are in conflict with Al Qaeda. So it's sort of like an enemy of my enemies, my friend type of thing. So Obama's gonna take out some of these Al Qaeda guys to support his work in the Muslim Brotherhood.
12: Bingo. Bingo. You've cracked the code. Unbelievable.
2: For maidens in the morning who wake with reddened eyes. Remembering love as lost and rising with the lark's first prize And never tasting love again till youth is almost gone Well, even you will beat the drums of freedom For beggars on the city streets that sink themselves so low and wonderful fancy where it pleased the wind to blow. I'll wager you a winter's night inside my feather bed that even you can't beat the drums of freedom.
14: So uh the kill list. I don't like to say drones because drones is just like one facet of the extrajudicial assassinations we're talking about. They can can kill you in many different varieties. They can use a missile. They can use a JSOC team to come come in and assassinate you. It doesn't have to be a drone.
15: Right. It's also one of those things that I'm happy that drones are being talked about a lot. But it's being talked about so much now and a lot of times in like a sort of wishy-washy... Gross liberal. Way. It's almost like
14: turned into a hashtag. Yes. Yeah.
15: Um, like I'm glad the onion's been talking about it a lot, but I feel like now it's just kind of turning into like white noise. Yeah. Um, where drones are just something that lefties who don't know about the real world complain about as opposed to the thing that blows children to pieces.
14: Right. Yeah. It can get a little lost in the abstract, but I thought up with Chris had a really great. Uh, in-depth conversation on The Kill List and Drone Strikes over the weekend. Jeremy Scahill was on the panel, and he was fantastic as always. But what I wanted to talk about specifically, I actually have a story to go along with the public's perception of Drone Strikes and The Kill List. But I also wanted to talk about the insane part in the expression, but blowback that uh, Scahill got on Twitter from just citing facts about drone strikes and not being really... I, I think the thing that set off people was he, um, he used this phrase, uh, I think it was partisan Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, it was pretty great. Which I think is a, a great way to phrase it, but it offended a lot of Obama supporters it who was. were like, we're not stupid. We're not brainwashed. We just disagree with you. You
15: know who says that? People with stock
14: <laughs> But here's the thing. Like, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Like, cause I, I some of my peers are uh, these people in this group who are en- enthusiastic Obama supporters.
15: Ew, who? Sorry. Uh,
14: I, I would say, I would go as far as saying it's ideologically inconsistent, bordering on hypocritic, hypocritical. Um, no, it's hypocritical. I wouldn't say bordering on hypocritical. It's crazy. I mean, there. It's, was- a, you, it's not crazy. It's the, crazy. The thing is, I really think that phrasing things that way immediately turns off people who might be open to discussion on it. By saying you're crazy and you're stupid, who is going to listen to anything you say after that? And I'm not putting Jeremy in that category. No, you're, putting, I think, you're
15: putting me in this category. Yeah,
14: I, I think calling people stupid and crazy isn't a way to approach I think when you, have, discussion. you
15: have three op-eds this week that came out, um, one of the New York Times by Jennifer Graham, one from some dude that I've never heard of that they read on Chris Hayes' show, um, and then Crystal, uh, Ball from MSNBC admitted that, uh, they're happy when Obama uses drones. Yeah. But yes, we would be upset.
14: That is hypocritical.
15: But it's stupid, think, supporting a policy and thinking that Barack Obama is going to be the president for life.
14: It's, short-sighted, hypocritical, ideologically inconsistent. I think calling people stupid and crazy... Those
15: are fancier words
14: for stupid. No, it's not. It's saying that these are ordinarily very intelligent people who I agree with on a lot of the issues, but on this one thing... And I was actually really happy the way Chris went into this segment on his show, where he said, look... I am aware that the right wing attacks President Obama all the time, sometimes for very racist and crazy reasons. So it makes sense that people on the left would automatically get very defensive and say, oh, you wouldn't criticize President Bush if he was doing this. When in fact, it's like people like Jeremy Scahill... People like you and I, we criticize the Bush administration all the time, and now we're criticizing the Obama administration for the same stuff that we would yeah. criticize the right doing. Of course. And I mean, so I, I think that is a huge part of the reason people on the left who ordinarily we agree with get weirdly defensive when it comes to talking about the kill list and drone yeah, strikes, and I'm, it's so frustrating. I mean,
15: usually on this show, our roles are actually reversed, and I'm a little more, like, sympathetic. Um, I was just really mad this morning because I thought that Chris did such a good job of being like, I know you guys are going to want to get mad. And we never get as much blowback as we do when we talk about Obama and the kill list. But like, let's just think about this. Just, let's just think about what's happening. And I even have a bit on my new CD coming out where I talk about like, I kind of joke about how it was so hard to be progressive on Twitter because there were so many racists going after Obama. And you'd be like, "Fuck these racists against Obama," and then progressives would be like, "Why do you support dr- support drones and Wall Street?" And then you'd be like, "No." And then you'd be like, "Fuck drones and Wall Street." And they're like, "Why do you hate Barack Obama because he's black?" And you're like, "God damn it!" And and it is really frustrating. Um, but I mean, to me, it's also like just so selfish when you know, like, I had this one guy who was. Much nicer and didn't seem stupid and seemed very sympathetic. Who was like, yeah, but because you're a celebrity, you're just not helping the cause by talking about this. And it's like, what is more important? The election, the election, which is fucking over, by the way. Romney. Wow, but there's
14: always another I election. <laughs> but,
15: right. But, you know, Mid Romney's not coming back, uh, to win. Um, or like just children being killed. And, 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 yeah. and, and what's crazy is like, Of course I was against George Bush when he did this, which – and you know how I know that? Because I recognize the arguments that George Bush supporters use against me because they're the same fucking arguments that you guys are using against me right now. You know what I mean? Like, that is how – I remember so clearly uh, being against George Bush because I heard the exact same shit from right-wing radicals as I do from – Right. Right so,
14: the things you're describing, I think, are caused by a whole host of, of, uh, reasons, but one is I, I think there's a fundal, fundamental misunderstanding of what the program does because we don't talk about it and there's a lot of secrecy and shrouding it. Um, and, and a poll came out <clears throat> sort of supporting this. Um, it was in the Huffington Post covered it. Um, so, oh, I think it was an online poll, so, uh, word of, <laughs> that's my disclaimer, online poll, but it was interesting. Um, only 27% of Democrats and 24% of independents said they would support using drone strike if civilians might also be killed. So this was interesting because the, the screaming headline was a majority support drone strikes. But when you, you parse it a little more carefully, it becomes clear that the support for drone strikes drops dramatically once the possibility of civilians being killed is thrown into the mix. Now, here's the thing. The possibility of civilians being killed is always in the mix. Right. So if that's a really important distinction for you, you should not support drone strikes. The reason I think people get caught up in that is... You know, they sort of say like, if if you don't support drone strikes, you're unserious because what? Would you rather have ground invasion? More
15: serves, more yeah. And
14: what I liked about what Chris said on Up with Chris was, you know, he was saying it's a false choice, which was the point I tried to make when I, I was on NBC not that long ago talking about drone strikes. Saying that we have to decide between drone strikes and ground invasion is a false choice. There's also a third option, and that's not doing either.
15: Right, Hayes brought that up yesterday. And
14: we don't even seriously discuss peace. Like, if you try to bring up peace, you are immediately dismissed as like a tree hugging hippie. Right. Like you're insane if you're coming from that direction. So, in, in in those you know in those terms, I think it it becomes easier to understand why so many on the left lash out seemingly unthinkingly. I don't think they understand the program. I think if they really understood the costs of drone strikes and the kill list, they would not defend it. Um, and there's a lot of this sort of blind partisanship because the right has so, you know, screamingly attacked Barack Obama for so long, and there are a lot of racists on the right. And I think, you know, unjustifiably, a lot of <laughs> enthusiastic Obama supporters think that anyone who criticizes the president must be, like, a secret racist or must be, you know, um a secret Republican. But, I mean, it should be as simple as, like,
15: it, it shouldn't be hard if, if instead of hero worship, you know, I, I'll blame the media, too, because the media always makes it seem like political issues aren't real issues that affect people, but it's just part of the game of politics, right? So... We, we never hear about the people being killed with drones. We hear about the, dr- the drone debate in Washington. Or it's never about the people dying in Iraq. It's, you know, the, this foreign policy debate in Congress. And because we're not dealing with actual issues and it just seems like it's a horse race, it seems like it's a sports game almost, Um I think people are just sort of – Brainwashed into supporting their team and supporting their side. Sure. So again, when Barack Obama does it, it's fine. When George Bush does it, it's bad. Um, Because we never think about the actual consequences of these policies. In theory, it should be really fucking simple. And I think part of the reason it's not is because we don't have viable third parties in this country. So they feel like they're sort of trapped into supporting one team. But like, why can't you just support positions? You know what I mean? If you were mad when George Bush did it, Be mad when Barack Obama does it.
12: We have talked extensively on what the problem with the drone regime, that the, and it's not really about drones. Drones are really the mechanism. There's a whole other set of problems with drones that have nothing to do with the kill list that the uh, Obama administration has developed. And Noah Feldman, the constitutional lawyer, uh, professor, I should say, law professor at Harvard University, um, really puts a very good, clear point on what is problematic about the kill list. And that is that it's a revolutionary and shocking transformation of the meaning of due process. He writes that it's the oldest and most essential component of the rule of law. goes back to the Magna Carta, which you all know. What has been considered the essence of due process since the time of the Magna Carta is that the accused must be notified of the charges against him or her and have the opportunity to have his or her case heard by an impartial decision-maker. Are U.S. enemies entitled to due process? Well, no, not if they're arrayed against the country on the battlefield in war. You don't try the enemy; you kill him, preferably before he kills you. If al waqi was an enemy fighting on the battlefield, he wouldn't have deserved due process while the fight was on. Off it, he should legally be like any other U.S. citizen, innocent until proven guilty. Applying due process analysis to Alwaki procedures is a du- legal disaster. The problem is, once you consider due process, you have to give it some meaning. And the meaning you choose will cast a long shadow of what the term means everywhere else. When you're on a battlefield, there is no question as to whether or not this person is trying to kill you. And it is long settled if they're waving a white flag that's a different question alwaki wouldn't receive notice the opportunity to be heard or a hearing before a decision-maker in other words he would receive none of the components of traditional due process not even one how the absence of due process could be magically transformed uh, into its satisfaction is never stated or explained referring to the white paper uh, released by the administration All we get is the assertion that a target's interest in life must be balanced against the government's interest in protecting other Americans. On this theory, no due process would be due those accused of murder because their lives would have to be balanced against the government's interest in protecting their potential victims. The cases cited by the white paper provide no precedent for the idea that due process could be satisfied by some secret internal process within the executive branch, Not that any such process is even mentioned. The reason they don't is obvious. There is no such precedent. Never, to my knowledge, in the history of due process, writes Feldman, the uh, the history of due process jurisprudence has a court said that a neutral decision maker wasn't necessary. And although the white paper doesn't say so, Alwaki even tried to get a hearing before he was killed. His father asked the federal court to find that he wasn't a terrorist. But the court never heard this claim because the Obama administration persuaded it not to consider the case. The Obama administration's apparent belief that due process can be satisfied in in secret inside the executive branch is arguably a greater departure from precedent. It is a travesty to the very notion of due process. And to borrow a phrase from Justice Justice Robert Jackson, it will now lie about like a, a loaded weapon ready for the hand of any administration needed. That is the problem. The problem isn't the idea of killing someone who is an enemy. It is a uh, a terrorist. The problem is there is no process in which to adjudicate or to provide due process to say that that person is that person that you are accusing them of being. So cut to MSNBC paid contributor to array and host i guess of the cycle co-host quad host of the cycle i don't know what they call it of the cycle who apparently uh... spoke about his support for president obama's drone program and then uh... i guess got some blowback and so then felt he had to come out strong and there was a lot of macho rhetoric in this but the underlying argument here is, with all due respect, completely nonsensical. Let's just take the first, I don't know, 30, 40 seconds of it.
16: I'm not
17: pro-drone, but I am pro-killing those who are working to kill us. I am anti-collateral damage. Everyone is. But I know civilians are tragically killed in human warfare and in robotic warfare. I know war crimes may have been committed by our drone program, but I am pro-killing al-Qaeda leaders via
12: drones. It's okay that war crimes were committed, but I want to make it clear that I am pro killing, even if we have to kill, commit war crimes. I mean, that's what that sounds like to me. But I, I don't know that that's what he's saying, but that's why I'm saying it's somewhat incoherent.
17: Even if they are American citizens, the authorization for use of military force gives the president the power to use all necessary force to prevent future attacks. And given that, you cannot join al-Qaeda in a time of war and traitorously plot against us in a foreign country and expect constitutional protection.
12: Why? Given that there is for, I mean, how do we adjudicate those claims he's making? He's making a series of assertions that people are saying must be adjudicated in some fashion under some concept of due process. But he's skipping over that. He's basically saying, like, okay, I'm going to grant you all of these issues, but still we should do this. Is, is the argument
17: continue? If you are in al-Qaeda working to kill Americans, you should be killed. Anwar al an operational figure involved with multiple attacks, a man convicted in absentia by a Yemeni court of belonging to al-Qaeda and committing murder.
13: Now, wait a
12: second. What is the value to Toure of this argument that he's been convicted in Yemeni court? What... What does that prove? That proves that he's a terrorist. So there, Toure is acknowledging that he, he needs to be adjudicated to be proved a terrorist before we go and then kill him. But are we ceding our due process to a Yemeni court? And aside from the fact that, as far as I can tell, he was sentenced in jail by that Yemeni court. Uh, in the the killing of a French engineer, and he was sentenced for not for killing, but for inciting people to kill. Is that the standard that we're going to use to assassinate people? They're inciting people to kill? Are we also going to start to say, like, hey, if you've got a problem with um, anyone else in this country, if you want to sue a corporation, feel free to go to a Yemeni court. Why is he even mentioning the Yemeni court? Implicit in him mentioning the Yemeni court is that we need some mechanism to determine whether or not this guy is a terrorist. But he's saying that the Yemeni court did it, so it's okay. He's a terrorist, we can kill him. But that's the whole point. He didn't end up on this list because of a Yemeni court. He ended up on this list because there is a secret secret mechanism in the administration to have a non Um, impartial judge, essentially, judge that he is guilty of this. That's what the problem is.
17: A man hiding in a tribal area from which American soldiers may have not been able to escape, that American citizen should have been killed. Abdul Rahman Alawaki, his 16-year-old son, was not in al-Qaeda. He was killed while looking for his father, who died two weeks earlier. Some say he was targeted, which would be tragic and a war crime. But there is much evidence that he was not targeted, but standing too near an al-Qaeda official named Ibrahim al who was targeted.
12: Every reporting that we've now seen says that that Ibrahim uh, al Kahana was is still alive. And fudging over, you know, it would be a war crime. Well, then I hope the next special comment we see from Torre will be, Let's see an investigation into this war crime that we've committed. Now, he went on, but it basically, like I say, it was just um, macho talk, as far as I could tell, that is better, um, I think, expressed by the Daryl Worley lyrics from Have You Forgotten? Which I will read. So that uh, we don't have any uh, rights issues. I hear people saying we don't need this war. But I say that there's some things worth fighting for. What about our freedom and this piece of ground? We didn't get to keep them by backing down. They say we don't realize the mess we're getting in. Before you start your preaching, let me ask you this, my friend. Have you forgotten how it felt that day? To see your homeland under fire and our people blown away? They took all the footage off my TV that said it's too disturbing for you and for me. It'll just breed anger. That's what the experts say. If it was up to me, I'd show it every day. Some say this country's just out looking for a fight. Well, after 9-11, man, I'd have to say that's right. I liked it in the original Darryl Worley better, frankly, uh, than Torre's uh, uh, rendition, but To each their own. And Darryl Worley, if you have any problem with us reading those lyrics, take it to a Yemeni court. There you go. (laughs) Sue me in Yemeni court. What a beautiful face I have found in this place that is circling all around the sun. What a beautiful dream that could flash on the screen in a blink of an eye and be gone from me. Soft and sweet, let me hold
6: with me
16: You know President Obama used two Bibles at his swearing-in at the inauguration. Uh, one was Lincoln's, the other one was Martin Luther King Jr.'s. And uh, apparently Cornel West did not love that idea. On Thursday the 17th, he was on a panel led by Tavis Smiley. There were many people on the panel, including Newt Gingrich. And when they got to the topic of uh, King's Bible, uh, Brother Cornell let her
1: go. When I got the news that my dear brother Barack Obama, President Obama, was going to put his precious hand on Martin Luther King Jr.'s Bible, I I got upset. And I got upset because you don't play with Martin Luther King Jr. and you don't play with his people. And by his people, what I mean is people of good conscience, fundamentally committed to peace and truth and justice, and especially the black tradition that produced him.
16: You know, uh, Cornel West used the word brother a lot because you're supposed to love your opponents, enemies, etc. And the president's not his enemy, but he will say brother Romney as well. Uh, But you get the sense that maybe he's not quite feeling the word brother. (laughs) Okay, because he's just getting started.
1: Here we go. You don't use his prophetic fire as just a moment in the presidential pageantry without understanding the challenge that he presents to all of those in power no matter what color they are. So the righteous indignation of a Martin Luther King Jr. becomes a moment in political calculation. And that makes my blood boil.
16: Boil. Okay. So you think, well, his blood has boiled. No, no, no. It's about the
1: board. (laughs) All of those in power who refuse to follow decent policies. So I say to myself, Brother Martin Luther King Jr., what would you say about the new Jim Crow? What would you say about the prison industrial complex? What would you say about the invisibility of so many of our prisoners, so many of our incarcerated, especially when 62% of them are there for soft drugs, but not one executive of a Wall Street bank going to jail. Not one. Martin doesn't like that. Not one wiretapper. Not one torture under the Bush administration.
16: It's impossible not to enjoy it when he gets rolling. Now, you might not agree with it, but it's fun to watch. Not one. Not one. And by the way, of course, he's right on the facts. No question about that either. One more.
1: What would you say about the drones being dropped? on our precious brothers and sisters in Pakistan and Somalia and Yemen. Those are war crimes just like war crimes in Vietnam. Martin Luther King Jr., what would you say? My voice hollers out, then don't tame it with your hand on his Bible. Allow his prophetic voice to be heard. All
16: right, now those are strong words. Now, there are other critics who agree. Uh, They say U.S. government is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. Now, strong words, strong words. Uh, Continuing to pursue endless war is to worship the God of hate and bow before the altar of retaliation. Wow, very liberal, very strong words. Unacceptable, I'm sure, in today's Washington. One more for you guys. How can they trust us now, referring to our enemies, We charge them with violence while we pour every new weapon of death into their land. Surely we must understand their feelings even if we do not condone their actions. Wow. Okay. Now those are some significant criticisms of the president and obviously way outside the mainstream. Try to understand our enemies? You care about their feelings? No. Complaining about uh, bombing them. No, you don't understand. They're the enemy. They're the bad guys. So who said those last three quotes? You got it by now? Martin Luther King Jr. Now, of course, he was talking about Vietnam. What do you think? Would we have agreed with drone strikes where we do signature strikes? We don't even know who we're hitting? The double taps where we kill first responders coming in to rescue the people who've been bombed in the first place? Where we even kill U.S. citizens without a trial if they're abroad? So is Cornell West right that Martin Luther King would have been upset about that? There is no question about that. Let me give you more quotes from King. We are called to speak for the weak, for the voiceless, for victims of our nation, and for those it calls enemy. Can you imagine saying that we have to speak for the enemy and the, and the victims of our violence? Because we're, we need to listen to them so that we can understand, so that we can get to peace. Okay? So we're not and we're not doing it for them, we're doing it for our own soul. That's what Martin Luther King often talked about. He's got more. He said a nation that continues year after year to spend money on military defense, more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual doom. You want to talk about strong words? What would Martin Luther King, Jr. have said? Listen to what he already said. Now, of course, they bury all that. They just say, oh, don't worry about the color of anybody's skin, content of their co- character. Yeah, well, of course, we're all Martin Luther King fans, absolutely. Glenn Beck pretends to be a Martin Luther King fan. Would he agree with these comments? Martin Luther King wasn't just about civil rights, although he did heroic work there. He was also about anti-militarism. He was in favor of uh, actually trying to fight poverty, along those lines, let me give you one last quote. King said, there are certain things in our nation and in the world which I am proud to be maladjusted and which I hope all men of goodwill will be maladjusted to. I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few. Now that's a progressive. So I think Brother Cordell West might be on something.
9: Okay. Emma here from Wellesley. I just have a point to add about corporations being amoral. I think I can subscribe to the same moral code as you and most of your listeners do, which says that if you can help someone out instead of making a profit for yourself, you should. It's not how we all act, but it's how deep down we think we would act if we were perfectly moral. We think it's good to keep American jobs at home at the expense of a bit of profit. We think good to avoid taking unfair advantage of people or the environment or whatever. We think extreme inequality is inherently bad. But anyone who has read Ayn Rand and sees what an impact her philosophy has had on America, or perhaps you know, what it is about a distinctly American philosophy that influenced her, anybody who knows, you know that there's a competing moral code, one based on the principles of hard work, responsibility, freedom charity as like an extra special, strictly religious and not governmental thing, but above all, freedom from the responsibility for supporting others who weren't capable of earning what you've earned. And it's the moral foundation upon which a lot of Americans understand each other, I think, and look for themselves, and look at themselves in the mirror and say, this is how capitalism works, and I may make profit for myself because to do otherwise is immoral. And there are solid economic principles that seem to justify this thinking. Of course, As someone who has taken more than just Econ 101, and they'll tell you that because capitalism is amoral, because of the weird selfishness we need to make this system work, for that reason, we must have government to deal with the unintended consequences, the externalities, to protect people from byproducts of a system that, when regulated, can do a lot of good for us. And this whole moral code depends for its life on a denial of structural inequality, which is why I think conservatives hate that concept so much and it amounts to a challenge of the moral values they hold most dear. We see government as a moral force that should be separated from amoral business, so that morality, what we think of as morality, can do its job, so it can regulate and make capitalism work for us. But A lot of people actually don't see that as a moral service the way we do. We have to understand how the other side sees it, why the other side thinks our ideas are ridiculous. They don't value the reasons why we're doing it. We're always framing things as, business cheating government and cheating us. When a lot of Americans see it as business desperately figuring out how to get around the stupid people who think it's a good idea to give others things they don't deserve. We'll never understand each other this way. Let's stop pretending we're all working from the same moral code. Last thing, good music on the gay rights episode. Today, this is Vicki from Oregon. This is an activist call to action. I was watching the Weather Channel this morning, as I usually do before I go off to work, and they actually had coverage of the Climate Change Rally in D.C., and I think we should reward them for good behavior. So please go to weatherchannel.com. On the right-hand side of their website, they've got a little feedback tab. Click on that and fill in the box and say, Thank you for covering the rally. So all we need to do is to uh, let people know when they're doing something good as well as something bad. Thanks.
10: Hi, Jay. This is Zach from the Chicago area. Um, I'm calling in response to uh, Mick from Australia, the, the Australian libertarian. I wanted to uh, address a couple of the uh, points he raised about the, as supposed the democracy of the left or redundancy of the left perhaps and um his his argument for the free market first off the idea that the left is for big government i think is a false narrative that is created by the right most leftists especially progressives i know are pretty scared about government right now and that they're snatching far too much power big government is a buzzword it's not a real thing i would say most of us are more effective government That supports the rights of the people uh, and not the rights of nebulous entities such as corporations. And beyond that, largely is for freedom uh, of the people to do as they want. The other element is this idea of the free market being an absolute good, of just letting the free market do its work. The free market is, is the same as government in the fact that they're both nebulous concepts. Government is not one thing. It is one idea that manifests itself in many forms. The free market is essentially the same thing. It is an idea created by people and therefore it is subject to the will of people and it supports a certain set of qualities in people gaining power and they will act to maintain that power. So the free market is not some great equalizer because there are a certain set of people that do well in the free market and a certain set that do not. This idea that competition will just magically The free market and competition will magically create the best of all possible worlds and nobody will be able to subvert the free market with or without government, doesn't hold water. Excellent case in point was brought up by an earlier caller with the disaster of Bhopal, India. That was not caused by government. That was caused by free market and reckless lack of regulations. The same thing with the Deepwater Horizon. The same thing with the Exxon Valdez. These things did not happen in any way because of government. It happened because the free market allowed people to get away with things that they would otherwise not have been able to get away with in an effort to make the most profit for their shareholders what we need is essentially the check and balance between free market and government if we're going to have either at all which we can debate the necessity of at, a, at another point in time uh, having the free market set against government Keeps the two of them keeping each other in check so that investments that the free market is good for can happen. But the research do areas that may not have a demand, such as solar power, can be advanced by government for the betterment of all. And the rights of people can be kept protected. All right, Jay. Uh, as always, love you, love your show. All right. Thank you very much. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to acting yourself to be played on the show, there's a new number to dial, that number 202-999-3991. And now I just want to touch on my perspective on corporations and government and morality and the lack thereof and so on. And basically, I think that corporations are amoral, first of all. But that they don't have to be moral entities in order to be a part of a well-functioning society. I think it's just important that the governing body who is in charge of oversight have morality. And so you know, governments derive their morality from people, the people who are governed, who do individually have a sense of morality. And so if the government is responsive to the people, then it can be moral. If it's not, then it likely won't be. And so what's natural is for corporations to try to make lots of money and then for politicians to try to get elected. And in our current system, politicians need lots of campaign contributions. This isn't news to anyone. And they get those contributions from the corporations. So the money comes from an amoral entity and it's the money that the politicians depend on. So it's very natural to see how politicians can go down the course of making, uh, you know, political decisions and votes that are not necessarily in line with the morality of the people being governed. And so, as the libertarian caller from the last show said, corporations love big government, but I think that that's only when the corporations are the ones controlling the government through their campaign donations. And so, the key is to reestablish a system by which the politicians draw their power from the moral population rather than the amoral corporations. Only then can the government be expected to act morally itself. And now, speaking of morality, I would really love to hear from anyone on the drone topic, uh, but especially I would love to hear from the really staunch Obama supporters who I know are out there listening. And you know, I, I don't expect for staunch Obama supporters listening to this show to necessarily defend uh, drone strikes that kill innocent people. But you know, the argument had, was made many, many times before the election that as progressives we can't you know we can't say bad things about the president because it, it you know diminishes his uh, chance of re-election and a romney presidency would be worse and now you know as was brought up in citizen radio there's always another election coming up you know we the argument could be made that we have to defend democratic policies because we have to recapture the house next time and so on and so on and so on so i would love to hear the moral perspective from anyone who is, you know, considers themselves sort of a diehard Democrat or a diehard uh, Obama supporter and so on and and to try to parse out how do we or how do you sort of navigate these waters through, you know, what seems to be blatantly immoral, if not unconstitutional, if not war criminal type uh, activities that our country is partaking in. So that's it for today. The number again to call in, 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, especially uh, by becoming members or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives.
4: up on a picture that wasn't right,
12: bitch burning on a shining sheet, the only maker that you wanna meet, a dying man in a living room, the shadow bases the floor will take you out anyway.